Have you been blessed so far through the Sabbath day? One of the evidences of the Lord's blessing and of the Holy Spirit's working is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I think all of us have felt that convicting work of the Holy Spirit, and I pray that it will continue. The topic this afternoon goes along with other things we've been studying already in the three angels' messages. What were the three areas mentioned in Revelation 14, 12 that were already noted? Faith, patience, and obedience. I'd like to consider a little bit this in our meeting this afternoon the topic of patience. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Now it's interesting, it says the patience of the saints, whereas when it mentions the faith, it says the faith of Jesus. Why do you think it says the patience of the saints? Which comes first, first, faith or patience? Faith. Faith comes first. How do we know? All right, it says says that in the Bible. Where? Hebrews? Chapter and text, please. Yes, that's true. Is there any place that directly shows us that faith comes first before patience? Did you find it? Yes. Let's turn. To, yes. Let's let's turn to Second Peter chapter one. This is referred quite a number of times in the Spirit of Prophecy to Peter's ladder. Peter's ladder. And it says that we are to to climb that ladder step by step. And there is a significance to the order of the things mentioned here. The, the whole chapter would really be good to study, but we're looking at patience, so we won't study the whole chapter. But notice the order given, and I want to start with verse 4. Whereby are given unto us, what? Exceeding great and precious promises. Have you found the promises to be exceeding great and precious or just humdrum? What does it mean to be great and precious? Is the promise of God more important to us than the blessing in hand? It should be. Yes. 
because we can depend more upon the promise than we can on some temporal blessing we may have at the moment. Can't we? The promises are exceeding great and precious. And it says that by these ye might be partakers of what? Divine nature. Through the agency of the promises, we are partakers of the divine nature. Now, what traits are in the divine nature? We've already studied about faith this morning, the faith of Jesus. Jesus lived by faith. What other traits? Love. Love. Joy. Joy. Peace. Long-suffering. Gentleness. Goodness. Yes, all of those fruits mentioned in Galatians 5. That by these ye might be the partakers of the divine nature. Christ took upon him human nature so that he could unite divinity and humanity in order that we might take upon us what? The divine nature through the promises. That we might be partakers of the divine nature. Sometimes people say in excuse of some defect of character, well, I'm only human. That's really a sad excuse because God offers us something more. He offers us to be partakers of the divine nature, not to remain just human. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, and beside this, giving all what? Diligence. What is diligence? Attention. Attention. Diligence has more of an active... Yes. It's energetic effort. Energetic effort. What are we to give energetic effort to? Giving all <laughs> diligence. Add to your faith. So there's what comes first. Remember, Jesus said that to every man is given a measure of faith. He didn't say to the disciples, O ye of no faith. He said, O ye of little faith. They needed their faith strengthened and expanded. Faith, you know, is like our spiritual muscle. And how is muscle developed? If I want, if I want to develop good, strong muscles... Can I do that by laying in bed every morning and thinking, muscles, get bigger, get stronger? The power of positive thinking, you know, a lot of people believe in that. Can you develop muscles by doing that? No. No, they get developed by putting strain on them, don't they? Over in America, maybe they have it here too. In athletic competitions and training and different things, they have a saying, no pain, no gain. It's when you use your muscles to the point where they start hurting, that's when you know they're going to develop. That's when they start increasing. And that's the way it is with the development of faith. Faith has to be under pressure. It needs to be expanded. It needs to be exercised in order to strengthen. We cannot originate any faith. We cannot add to our faith by the power of positive thinking. But faith will increase as it is used. 
Beside this, giving all diligence, add to our faith. Virtue. That's right. What comes next after virtue? Knowledge. What's after knowledge? Temperance. Knowledge is to teach us where and how to be temperate. And what comes after temperance? Patience. To see, patience is several steps down the way from faith. So here we have a clear passage that says this faith comes first. But the development of patience is a vital area of significance for us to consider. Now there are examples of patience in the Bible, and a study of patience in Scripture shows us that patience is an attribute that is very precious and very dear to God. Something he values very highly and longs to see in his children. Can you think of some examples in Bible history that are illustrations of the character trait of patience? All right, Job. The Bible cites Job as an example of patience. Joseph. Joseph. That's one that I, I want to touch on a little more a little later. Jacob. Daniel. All right, Moses. Now, Moses is a very interesting uh, illustration. Moses, it says in the Bible was the meekest man on the earth. He had perfect patience for 40 years. Yes, he didn't have patience then when he was ready to deliver Israel after the first 40 years, but after going through God's higher education in the wilderness of Midian, he learned patience. And he was able to exercise perfect patience, not for one day or for one week. You know, if we went all the way through a week and we could look back through the week and we could say, I never lost patience by God's grace one time through this whole past week. Would you feel like that was quite an attainment? You never became irritated in the slightest bit. You never had any feeling of resentment that resided in your heart towards somebody doing wrong towards you. You had no grudge. You had perfect patience all the way through the whole week. That would be quite an attainment, wouldn't it? What if you had a whole year like that? You could look back through and say, by God's grace, I gained victory every time there was a provocation. I never cherished hard feelings toward anybody. I never raised my voice in irritation. I never spoke back hastily in response to somebody through this whole past year. And I know the glory goes to God. That would be quite a remarkable development of character, wouldn't it? We might be getting close to translation, we would think. Well, think about Moses. He went 40 years with that kind of a record. Now, if we had gone 40 years, surely we'd be ready for translation, wouldn't we? Or would we? How, was Moses ready for translation? How do we know? Because after 40 years, he lost patience. Yes. He became irritated with the children of Israel. 
After 40 years, they had worn out his patience, and his faith faltered. He lost his view of God long enough to lose patience. And he took the credit for bringing the water out of the rock. Must we fetch you water out of the rock? The people that it's describing as that are the result of the message of Revelation 14 are a people who has a patience that can be tested with a more severe test than Moses faced, a more severe test than Joseph faced, a more severe test than anyone else has faced in past history of these Bible examples, a more severe test than Job. And they pass the test, and it can be shown that they will never lose patience again through all eternity. These are the people God is pointing to in Revelation 14. Here, he doesn't say here is the patience of Moses being demonstrated in these people, or here is the patience of Job being demonstrated in these people. Here is the patience of the saints. Now look around for a little bit. Many of you are looking at me, but look around at the other people. <laughs> Do you see as you look into one another's faces or even as you look at my face and as I look out at you, can you tell by looking at one another's face who has the most patience? <laughs> Suppose that it was your responsibility to design a test that you could administer to all of the people here to see who has perfect patience. What would you include in that test? I've asked people this question sometimes and people have said, like maybe some of you might say if you were to answer, yes. I'm on marriage. <laughs> That's one of the things people have said. They said, well, it needs to be it needs to include being married. That's a severe test of patience. <laughs> and most of the time people have said it needs to include having children. That's a severe test of patience. I see a number of you nodding. And people have thought of other things and I said, "Okay, let's take all of these things. Let's put them all together." and then administer this kind of a test to everybody that's here. After they've gone through that test, would you be certain that a person who passed all of those things had the patience that could meet anything that would come and would be guaranteed to last for eternity? Nobody's willing to say that their test would guarantee that. So I think as we consider that, it helps us realize that the kind of test they will show if a person's patience is perfected is beyond our ability to engineer. And I think we can recognize God is the only one who can see how to make that kind of a test, but we need to recognize that God's people are going to face that kind of a test. Yes. Says, All our righteousness are as filthy rags. So even if we have a perfect day, a perfect week, we still fall short. Yes. But we need to recognize that there is coming a time when God's people will have to demonstrate that they can stand for eternity without falling short. 
We may fall short here today, but somewhere along the way, God needs to be able to point to his people and say to Satan, anything you can do will not provoke these people. They will reflect my character, and it will be like that for eternity. They will never change. Until God can point to a people and say that, Satan will keep saying, these people are my lawful subjects. You can't take them to heaven. Well, I have another question. Let's say we don't know how to design the test. But it's our responsibility to prepare a person to meet the test. What kind of things would you put into that preparation? We don't know of any university where they offer a PhD degree in patience. <laughs> Even if somebody had that kind of a course in a school, what would be included in it? Would you have lots of reading material about how nice patience is? Yes. Um, somebody you don't get on with. All right, you have to spend time with somebody you don't get along with. <laughs> That's very good. All of us have to face that test, don't we? So the Lord has already started us in the preparation. Now, as you start thinking about it, you'd start including all of the things you'd put into a test, wouldn't you? Really, the, the conclusion is that the things upon which we are going to be tested need to be a part of the preparation on a smaller scale. And that's really the way it is in temporal life, isn't it? When you face a test on physical development, the way that you prepare for that test is straining your physical development to prepare for it. So it's the things that you are facing in the test that are the same things you use on a smaller scale to prepare for the test. And so here again we see God is the one who is able to prepare us for the test. Suppose God was to say to us, you're going to be faced with this test in the future. You're going to be tested on patience. And I need to be able to show that your patience through my grace working in your heart and experience is developed enough so that whatever test can come to you in the area of patience, you will be able to pass that test and you will be able to demonstrate my character trait of perfect patience before the universe in order for me to be able to take you to heaven to live with me for eternity. Suppose God was to say that, but he's going to say, so you can choose what kind of things you want to go through to prepare for that test? What would you choose? Would you choose easy things or hard things? Suppose God had a multiple choice. Here's all the things and you can pick the ones you want. I think most of us would probably try to make it as easy for ourselves as we could. So it's not even safe for God to give us a multiple choice and say you can choose whatever you would like out of these things to prepare for the test. Yes. Remember the time that David sent Joab to number the, the people in Israel? Yes. And then God says, well, he's going to punish David, but he's going to give David 
He gave him three choices. Yes. Yes. David recognized that if he was to choose out of those things that yes so he he selected the choice that put the most responsibility on God and that's really the only safe thing that we can do we need to ask the Lord you choose so maybe we do that in the morning we get up and we pray to the Lord Lord I recognize that yesterday I raised my voice in my discussion with my wife or with my children. I got irritated. I got short. And I need more patience. Help me to develop patience today. How long does the Lord wait to answer our prayers for the development of character to be like Him? Does He wait for several days or a week or... Right? I think the Lord starts with that kind of a prayer right away. So how does He work to answer that kind of a prayer? By appearing not to answer. <laughs> Make us wait? He commits the very things that we've been praying against. He starts allowing the things that test our patience. Because that's how patience is developed. So provocations start coming in irritations. Yes. Things start happening that interfere with our plans and our appointments and our responsibilities, at least as far as we perceive them. And we say, Lord, I prayed for you to help my patience, not to provoke me. Let's look at some Bible passages that talk about the development of patience and how we should relate to this training process. James chapter 1. I appreciate very much how the apostles started their letters and it used to be in reading these it almost seemed like some kind of a formal beginning like when you read a letter somebody sends and they say dear so and so we don't stop and think that they really are cherishing a fond affection for us by writing the word dear you know that's what the word usually means isn't it well, we take it just to be a formal beginning of a letter and we pass on. We want to see what the letter says. But what if that was all there was in the letter? Dear so-and-so. Would we take that as an expression of deep affection and heartfelt thought toward us? But that's the way these epistles start out. These words actually are full of meaning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into what? Divers temptations. How many times do we thank the Lord for all the temptations that came to us that day? Should we? 
we're to pray that the Lord will lead us not into temptation. But we also read in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that the Lord will not suffer us to be tempted above that we are able. But he will suffer us to be tempted because being tempted tests our faith and is necessary to develop our faith. And notice what it continues saying here. Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. When we have trials and difficulties, we should thank the Lord that he's allowed us to experience something he sees we need. Knowing this, now this is the only way we can find any joy out of these experiences, is if we know this. Knowing this, that the trying of what? The trying of your faith does what? Worketh patience. See the relation of faith and patience? How is patience developed? By the trying of faith. Now what is the trying of faith? Yes, it's the testing process, the pressure. When we were studying about the cornerstone this morning, one of the tests that the cornerstone had to face was the test of supreme pressure. That's the test of faith. Remember the message to the Laodiceans. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, in the heat, under pressure. How do we buy the gold? The price of the gold is the heat of the fire. The willingness to endure the fire is the price we must pay to gain the gold. The development of faith. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work. It's the Lord's desire that there will be a perfect development of patience in our experience. We should not be satisfied with anything less than the Lord wants. We should not set our standard, but we should accept the Lord's standard. I, I sometimes feel very sad when I hear people talk about being legalistic when we are trying to please the Lord in all that we do. Who is the most legalistic? The person who is trying to please the Lord in all that they do or the person who's modifying the standard and putting it in a place that they can reach easily and letting a lot of their life slide? Yes, anytime we're setting our own standard, we're being a legalist. We are, th we are actually showing that we think that the standard must be where we see that we can fulfill it and then we feel satisfied. The issue of legalism, brothers and sisters, is not an issue of how much we are trying to do. It's why we are doing what we're doing. It's an issue of motive. In the book Desire of Ages, page 480, there's a very interesting statement. It says, it is, if the followers of Christ are not led to follow him out of a desire for a reward or a fear of punishment. You take away the desire for reward, the desire for eternity, for eternal life, for living happily forever. Take away that reward. Take away the fear of punishment, the fear of burning in hell, the fear of being lost forever. 
If you take those things away, what motive have you got left to live for Christ? The statement goes on to tell, there is another motive. It's a motive that supersedes those. Those motives will eventually fail. A person will end up doing something wrong because the hope of some future reward will not be as strong as the desire for present satisfaction of feeling, of present sensation. The present reward will overwhelm any hope of future reward. The fear of some present calamity will blind a person to the fear of some distant punishment. But there's one motive that will supersede all of these things, and the passage goes on to tell what it is. It says the disciples of Christ, as they see his life from the manger to the cross of Calvary, that love awakens in their heart. The disciples of Christ, the followers of Christ, follow him out of a love that arouses in their heart as they see him. And that love, brothers and sisters, will motivate a person to strive to please Christ in the smallest things. And that is not legalism. But many people will try to tell you that's being legalistic. When anybody tells you that you are being a legalist, you know what they are doing? They're actually doing what Jesus said not to do in Matthew 7. That's right. Because the issue of legalism is the issue of motivation. And so when somebody says you're being a legalist, what they're doing is they're judging your motive and saying we know why you're doing what you're doing. It's because you're trying to work your way to heaven. Well, how can a person tell whether you're trying to work your way to heaven? Only God can tell that. Man looketh on the outward appearance. The Lord looketh on the heart. The person who is trying to please God will be more careful in the little things than the person who thinks it doesn't matter what I do. Let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire wanting, that is, lacking nothing. Let's go to Romans chapter 5, verse 3. We ought to start with verse 1, I suppose. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That comes first. Then what can develop in Christian experience? By whom also we have access, how? By faith. Into this grace. So by faith we have access to grace. Now what is grace? One of my favorite Bible passages is a Bible study on grace found in Titus. Let's keep your finger here in Romans 5, but let's just quickly go to Titus for a moment. Titus chapter 2. There's a whole Bible study here on grace because much of evangelical Protestantism has developed a philosophy of grace that is totally misleading and have made grace to simply be a benevolent attitude of God toward us. That really God 
owed it to us to destroy us, to punish us for sin. But he has such a benevolent attitude toward us that he lets us off the hook, and that's called grace. But what is grace in the Bible sense? Notice, it is, it's true, it is God's unmerited favor, but, but how does God's unmerited favor function in our lives? Is it just an attitude on his part, or is grace something that actually functions in our experience? Notice what it says here in Titus chapter 2, starting with verse 11. And I, I appreciate so much how the Bible words things. Notice how this is worded. For the grace of who? Okay, this is the grace we want to understand, isn't it? God's grace, not somebody's idea of it, but God's idea of it. The grace of God that what? Bring us salvation. Okay, so maybe there are many teachings of grace. You know, Satan counterfeits everything that's true. But here we are looking not at any counterfeit teaching of grace. We're looking at the teaching of the grace of God that brings salvation. This is the real thing, right? Or am I wrong? All right. This is the real thing, the grace that brings salvation. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Now, what does that mean? Let's keep reading. Teaching us. Oh, so grace is a teacher. It's an instructor. What does it teach us? What does it tell us? Let's keep reading. Teaching us that. If you don't hear this in the preaching or teaching of grace that you've been hearing, you have not been hearing the grace of God that brings salvation because here's what the grace of God that brings salvation teaches. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the future life. That's right. In this present world. Now the other is a false teaching. This is the teaching of the grace that brings salvation, that we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. That's the true teaching of grace, brothers and sisters, according to the Bible. But that's not all. Looking, oh, so we are to look for something. Looking for what? Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Now, all of these things, grace, the true teaching of grace is teaching us. All of that is being taught to us through the teaching of grace. Teaching us that he gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from most iniquity. Is that what it says? All iniquity. Yes. And purify unto himself a peculiar people. Now, in what sense are they peculiar? Because they are zealous of good works. Is this because they're earning their way to heaven? Not at all. It's because when grace works in the heart, that's the natural desire to please God in everything. 
As Brother Gregory pointed out this morning, Jesus said, I do always those things that please God. And that desire and that motive and that quality of living will be exemplified in all who receive the true grace that leads to salvation. Okay, let's go back to Romans 5 now. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace. This grace that we just read about there in Titus 2. We have access into that grace, and it will teach us and instruct us and develop all those things that it was teaching there. Wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in what? Tribulations. Does that sound like having joy when we fall into divers' temptations? Yes, we glory in tribulation knowing, so here again, we can only do that if we know something, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. That it worketh patience. There is no other way for the development of patience. We cannot pray in the morning, Lord, strengthen my patience, and expect that somehow, miraculously, supernaturally, without any striving on our part, we suddenly will have an increased degree of patience that day. It doesn't happen that way. The patience comes as the tests come, and we determine to rely upon Christ by faith. Faith is exercised in that way, and we will look at that just a little bit here soon. Knowing this also, that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. All right, let's look at another passage of Scripture back over in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, we'll start with verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So here it points to things that are reserved that are part of the inheritance for God's people, which are to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold what? Temptations. Temptations. Now, it says that we can rejoice because we can know something, and that is found in verse 7. 
that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Well, let's pause and look at this for just a little, little bit. The trial of our faith. How does that happen? Every time a test comes to us, any time through the day, that is a trial of our faith. It's a test to see are we going to do things our way or are we going to seek God's way? Are we going to depend upon him? Or are we going to ask his guidance and his counsel? Or will we respond out of the natural inclination and prompting of the human heart? We always have that choice. We have the prompting of the natural heart, the temptations of Satan, and we have the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And we can choose one or the other, but not both. So when that trial of our faith occurs, it says here that that trial is much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Now who is gold precious to? Do you think God values the gold? Now gold is a precious metal. But is it, is it important to God to keep track of all of the gold that exists? Is it precious to Him? He says the gold and the silver is mine. All of it. If there's not enough, He can create a million times more. So gold is really like sand to God. Now how valuable is sand to you? Would you pay everything you had to buy a grain of sand? No. And the gold is no more precious to God than sand is to you. But something is precious to God, and what is it in this verse? It's the trial of our faith. The trial of our faith is precious to God. Now, who is gold precious to? It's precious to man, isn't it? If there was an honest and legitimate way for you to obtain half of all of the gold that exists in the world by selling your house, your car, your clothes, and all of your possessions, would you be willing to make that exchange? Sure. sure. I think most of us would. If it was an honest and legitimate exchange. Because we could immediately buy back a million times more, and we'd have lots of money to use for the Lord's work. We would be willing to do that. The gold is precious to us. Now, the, the thought of this statement in the light of these things could be paraphrased this way. That the trial of our faith is more precious to God than all the gold in the world is precious to any human being. So that means that the smallest trial of your faith that comes today, maybe it's simply a matter of not being able to eat the meal on time. Maybe that's a little bit of a trial. Maybe the meal is 30 minutes late. Is that a trial for anybody? Sometimes it is. That kind of a trial of your faith, it may seem very small, but the outcome of that trial is more important to God than all the gold in the world could be to any of us here. Can we comprehend that kind of an interest in the development of our experience on the part of God? 
God has that kind of interest. He is anxiously watching. I read a description one time of somebody who went to a, a silver refinery. And there was a process going on in which the silver was melted down and it was in a large pot in one particular part of the refinery. A man was there who was supervising this particular batch of silver. And he was watching in the pot as the silver it was molten there and the fire was burning that was heating it. And he was asked, how do you, what are you doing and how do you know the development of the silver in the refining process? He was skimming off um, scum and other impurities that came to the top as the silver was in its molten state there. And he was explaining how as the silver is heat, heated up, that it goes through different stages of, of its refinement and, and releasing the impurities. And they said, how do you know when it has reached the point of, of uh, becoming fully purified? How long do you have to go? And he said, well, it's a, it's a very uh, careful process that's required because if you go too long, it will damage the silver. He said at just the right point, you have to take it off the heat. And he said the only way that you can tell is that you watch carefully in there, and when you can see your reflection in the silver, you know that it's just right, and you must take it off of the heat. Does that give us any insight into the process that is described in the Bible in Malachi 3 where it says that God sits as a refiner and purifier of the sons of Levi as a refiner of silver. And this refining process is the process of trials. I'd like to go back to the experience of Joseph. Joseph went through a great test of patience and it describes this experience in volume one of the Ellen White comments page 1097 you remember what Joseph's test of experience was in fact he had a number of them he was sold into slavery by his brothers uh, a fate that was worse to be feared than death he was faithful he determined to be faithful to God no matter what would happen even at the young age of about 17, his faithfulness led to him being trusted by Potiphar with all of his whole household. And he was faithful in that trust. He was so faithful that he refused to give in to Potiphar's wife and her enticements. He determined to be pure and true to God. And as a result of that determination, he ended up being cast into prison and put in stocks. He was accused of the very crime he refused to commit. What would happen if we went through a similar experience? Have you ever been accused of something you didn't do? What about being punished for it as if you had done it? On a public scale, cast into prison. Joseph's faithful integrity led to the loss of his reputation and his liberty. This is the severest test 
that the virtuous and God-fearing are subjected to, that vice seems to prosper while virtue is trampled in the dust. The seducer was living in prosperity as a model of virtuous propriety, while Joseph, true to principle, was under a degrading charge of crime the most revolting. Notice the next sentence. Joseph's religion kept his temper sweet. Do we have Joseph's religion? Or do we have a different religion? Joseph's religion had the ability to keep his temper sweet in the midst of a circumstance like that. We fail with much less. What does that tell us about what kind of religion we have? Joseph's religion kept his temper sweet. Is Joseph's religion available to us today? Yes, it is. It surely is. And if we don't have it, we need it. And we need to confess our need, and the Lord will help us. Joseph's religion kept his temper sweet and his sympathy with humanity warm and strong, notwithstanding all his trials. Have you ever met people who sometimes seem like they're just filled with little barbs and anything that, that you say to them, they snap back? They just seem to be unhappy about anything and everything. And it's not that you do anything to them. It's just that any time somebody talks, that's an opportunity for the irritation to manifest itself. Sometimes we may wake up in the morning feeling like that. Do we have to allow those kind of feelings to control us? No, we don't. We have the privilege of committing all of those kind of feelings to God and asking Him to be in charge and committing our life into his hands. There are those who, if they feel they are not rightly used, become sour, ungenerous, crabbed, and uncourteous in their words and deportment. They sink down discouraged, hateful, and hating others. But Joseph was a Christian. Joseph was a Christian. Am I a Christian? Are you a Christian? No sooner does he enter upon prison life than he brings all the brightness of his Christian principles into active exercise. He begins to make himself useful to others. He enters into the troubles of his fellow prisoners. He is cheerful, for he is a Christian gentleman. And all of this was a preparation for the work that he entered upon when he became prime minister of Egypt. I'd like to mention four things, just quickly in closing, that we can focus on as we realize our need for a greater development of this trait that is so dear to God. Number one is beholding. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 4, it says that as we behold... Jesus, that we can be strengthened. Beholding, we can look at the example of Jesus. Number two, we must pray for God's help. We mustn't pray that the temptation be taken away from us, but rather that we receive grace to meet temptation, that we can be victors. Number three, 
Hebrews 12:4 says, "Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin." We must put forth earnest resistance when tempted to yield to impatience. Number four, we must watch and pray. We must watch for temptation. We must try to avoid that which would lead us into temptation. My father used to have a little saying that he would tell me sometimes when he thought I needed a little counsel. If I was acting too impetuous, he would say, Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And oftentimes we are told in inspiration that Satan is surprised at how far we go in inviting temptation. We must watch and pray. From the book My Life Today, page 97, some of us have a nervous temperament and are naturally as quick as a flash to think and act, but let no one think that he cannot learn to become patient. Patience is a plant that will make rapid growth if carefully cultivated. By becoming thoroughly acquainted with ourselves and then combining with the grace of God a firm determination on our part, we may be conquerors and become perfect in all things, wanting in nothing. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we have looked some this afternoon at the trait that is so precious to thee, the trait of patience, the trait that Jesus manifested through his life on earth when he was courteous, calm, and unprovoked even with his enemies. And we desire to reflect that trait of Jesus. I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here, for myself, for we still need more development of this trait. And I pray that we would be willing to endure the trials of our faith that are necessary for the development of patience. That we would have a trust and confidence in Thee, and that we would feel that we can commit our lives to Thee, And have the confidence that whatever temptations or trials may come, that all things do work together for good if we love thee. I pray that as we go through the rest of this Sabbath day, the conviction and the promptings and the working of thy spirit in our hearts will deepen and strengthen and bear fruit. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.